0: Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: Have a seat if you haven't already, and if if you have a Bible, it's time to turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to carry on with our story then. But before we do that, before we read the passage, let me ask if you've ever been on a significant journey, maybe it was a a long journey or a short journey, but think back to some of the significant journeys you've been on in your life. Some of them may well have been very, very short indeed. Maybe the most significant journey you've been on so far, from your mother's womb to the midwife's hands not a very long journey, but extremely important. Maybe another one that you've been on, a short walk up an aisle, if you're a lady anyway, and you've been married. Just a few steps, 10, 20 feet. Not much more than that if you got married in our church building in Ammonford anyway, but an extremely significant journey. Not very far, but really important. Maybe driving home for Christmas. That's something that sticks in your mind. That's a significant journey for you, far away from home, and you get to go back and see those you love. Maybe you think of historical journeys in history. Caesar crossing the Rubicon. I don't know if you remember learning about that. Uh, saying the die is cast and changing Roman and world history forever. With just a, a few steps across a small river north of Rome. The Prime Minister at the end of her reign driving to Buckingham Palace to hand, hand over the keys of power. And, um, and say that she's finished. And then the new Prime Minister once the election's done. Driving into Buckingham Palace and being given the responsibility to be our prime minister. Football teams taking open-top bus tours with trophies in hand. Maybe today has been a significant journey for you. From the car park, the guts to get out of the car and walk in here, not knowing what you would expect. Do you think of some significant journeys you've been on before? Well, the journey we're going to read about in a moment that Atena read about, that Matthew um, spoke about too, was a pretty short journey, probably not more than a kilometer, a quarter of a mile, Not much more than that from where Jesus was staying into Jerusalem. But let me read to you the story of Jesus' triumphal entry. Although you might notice it doesn't really feel particularly triumphal by the time we get to the end of it. Anyway, let's read the story. If you're in the Church Bible, page 1015. If you want to, you can wander over and, and grab one from the table. Follow along on an app or whatever you like. We're going to read from chapter 11. Chapters, if you're not familiar with the Bible before, the big numbers that you'll find within the text. And then verses are like a superscript, little tiny ones. So we're going to read from chapter 11 at the bottom of page 1015 and the first 11 verses. As they approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus with his followers, they came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it to me. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street and tied, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people stood standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks, on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple, looked around at everything. Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve bit of a strange ending, but let's pray and ask God to help us as we come to his word. Lord, we ask now that as we come to your Bible, we pray that your word would be our guide, that you would speak to us through it. Father, we ask that as we seek to understand it, as we, um, as we read, as we hear, as we think, as we digest it ourselves, would your spirit be our teacher? Would you move among us? Help us not just to get this in our minds, but help us to have it weigh upon us in our hearts. Uh, Father, we ask that in all things, you would change us and make us live for you and for your glory above all things. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder what that journey would be for you. What's that significant journey you remember in your life so far? Maybe a small distance, but big significance. Well, that's what Jesus is doing today in our story. Really, he's been on a much longer journey so far. If you've been with us so far through the story, you'll have seen in the last few chapters, Jesus beginning his journey to Jerusalem. And really, it started all the way at his birth. The angels came and announced that a saviour, someone who would rescue the people, was, had been born into the world. And so all that time, from his birth until now, when he's probably about 32, 33, he's been making this journey towards Jerusalem. And now he's finally got there. A few chapters earlier, well, a few verses earlier in chapter 10, there's this strange time where Jesus charges on ahead. It's, it, something comes over him, and the disciples tremble in fear, they wonder, they, they don't know what's come over him, but he's set his face towards Jerusalem. He's got a task to finish, and he's charging on, leading the way to Jerusalem. And the people are following him. And now, in the story today, we get to it. We get to the last week of Jesus' life. At least that's how Mark's, Mark puts it. Seven days that finish with Jesus' death and resurrection. Seven days that take up almost half of his book. Seven days that take up almost half of every single one of the other Gospels. The other stories, biographies of Jesus' Jesus's life. So, what Jesus is going to do on this journey is the most important thing in his life. Somebody um, has called the Gospels stories about Jesus' passion, uh, his suffering, passion narratives, stories of Jesus' suffering with extended introductions. It's basically what they are. I mean, in most biographies, if you read a sporting biography or celebrity or something, you get lots and lots of their life. And then most of them are published before they die, so that deaths aren't even in them. But with Jesus, almost all the story is about his death and the events leading up to it and just after it. And kind of half of the story is just introducing that. And so this is what Jesus has been doing so far, introducing. Um, Mark's been doing that, introducing us to Jesus. And so he gets to the end of his walk and has just half a kilometer left to go, and something really significant happens. You learn a lot from this last little bit of the journey. Jesus is in a really familiar place, by the way. Um, You might have heard the names Lazarus before Jesus raised from the dead, or Mary and Martha. Do you remember Mary and Martha, who were serving Jesus um, and always looking after him? Really close friends, Jesus' best friends. They lived in Bethany. So Jesus knows this place, may well have known the owner of this cult. Um, Who knows? But here he comes, settles in, half a a mile away from, from the city walls, and then does something that's recorded in all of the other Gospels. There's not many stories that are. It's Jesus' death and resurrection and a few of of the parables and stories and bits of his life that are recorded in all four. But this is one of those quite rare things that's recorded in every single one of Jesus' biographies. So it must be pretty significant. Jesus must want us to know, to have given us this story four times over, must really want us to pay attention and dig into it a little bit deeper. So that's what we're going to do. Jesus is the king. That's the point. That's what you learn from this story. Jesus is the king. So the first question, really, why didn't he walk? Why didn't he walk on this last bit of the journey? He's been walking all the way up till now, at least we're pretty sure that he has been walking around with his disciples here, there, and everywhere. And so he gets to the last half a kilometer and decides to get on a donkey. Why does he do that? I mean, is he tired? Yes, he probably is tired, but that's not the reason. Why does he get on a donkey to go the last few steps of the journey? Well, the answer to that is back in the Old Testament. Some verses from a a vintage prophet called Zechariah. I wrote a short book, and in Zechariah, you find these words. These are written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's God's people. O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter, O people of Israel. Your king is coming to you, riding on a donkey. That's what's going on here. Jesus knows that's what's going on. That's why he picks a donkey. He knows who he is. And the people maybe are beginning to pick up some hints of who he is. They've seen his life so far, two, two and a half, three years of wonderful teaching. I mean, teaching, you just couldn't stop listening to. You couldn't fall asleep in it. Wonderful miracles as well. People's lives just turned the right way up again. People who were sick, made well. People who were oppressed by spiritual darkness, set free. People who were hungry, fed. People who were dead, raised to life again. Jesus has been doing amazing stuff. There's plenty of hints about who he is, that he's the king and not just a A political king who's going to come and and bring some freedom or some some better systems of government. But a king over everything. That's who Jesus is. That's who Zechariah said he was. That's who Jesus thought he was. He could have easily walked the last few steps. But he chooses to send his disciples on ahead, to get a a colt, the foal of a donkey, and to ride it into Jerusalem. Why? Because that's what the king would do. That's what the Messiah, the one who would come and fix everything, would do. That's what people were looking forward to. You see, he's not just the king of the Jews, not just the king of Israel, not just come to bring a little bit of help politically to a a city or a land several thousand years ago. Let me read you this. God has exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee, not just Jewish knees, but every knee should bow. In heaven, every spiritual force on earth, Every human and every, everything that he's made, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth, even the dead, will bow to him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's who this is, riding on a donkey, a little bit obscure and strange, a, a decent crowd there, but not everyone, and yet this is who he really is. Peek behind the curtain of history and you'll see the man riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, isn't just a king of the Jews, isn't just a, a good teacher who can help us out and, and teach us to share and care and be nice to each other. This is a king, the, your king, the king who made you, who lends you breath day by day, you and me, who gives permission for your heart to beat a little while longer. The one who's the king over everything, who one day, whether you believe in him or not, Your knees will bow to, and your tongue will say, yes, it's true. That's what it means to confess. Yeah, it's true that he's the king. And I've known him all this time, and I'm looking forward to seeing him. Will you be able to say that? Or will you say, yes, it's true, he's the king? I should have listened when I had the chance. But now it's too late. Jesus is the king. That's what we learn from this. And so what does it mean that he's the king? Well, it means this. Can we pop our quote up? This means... But there is not a square inch, as a, this is a, a Dutch theologian, pastor, and prime minister. He's a busy man. Um, this is what he said about Jesus being king. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not a single inch of, in, of the entire human existence, whether we acknowledge it or not, over which Jesus doesn't look and rule and say, that belongs to me. That is mine and rightfully. So what does that mean for us today? Well, it means, well, think about your money. when I think, has said this before. It's a phrase that, um, that I think is really helpful. Think about your money. We often think like this. I earn so much money, or I, I have this much in the bank, and I might give a little bit to church. I might give a little bit to children in need. I might give a little bit here and there. I might be generous, but really it's my money, and I choose to do with it what I want. This, Jesus being king, flips that on its head and means for us now that it's not how much I of my money I choose to give away, but how much of God's money I now choose to keep. Because every pound, every penny in my bank account, Jesus says, that's mine. It belongs to me. Or what about your time? Every second of time that you have. It doesn't belong to you, really. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. So whatever we do, whether we're eating or drinking, whether we're working or sleeping, whether we're resting or having some leisure time, going fishing, whether whatever it is, that time, that activity belongs to him. It's something that you can do to offer him, to say, Lord, you're my king and I want to please you as I eat this sandwich, as I enjoy this Sunday lunch, as I have an afternoon nap, as I look after and discipline my children and grandchildren, as I work on this spreadsheet, as I mow this lawn, as I fix these power lines, as I write this music, as I teach and discipline these children in my class, as I do absolutely anything, wipe a nappy, do some heart surgery, build a ha- whatever it is that you're doing, Jesus looks at that and says, this is activity by my people in my kingdom. And he's pleased with it. If You do it for him, he's pleased with it. He's king over everything. That also applies if you're not a Christian too. If you don't know Jesus, well, he's still your king. And so what are you doing? You're turning away from him. You're not living as you're not living according to, to reality. And that's something, that's something that has consequences, as we'll see in a little bit. Jesus is king over everything. That's what we learn, because he rides on a donkey. Maybe a bit of a strange thing, but look, back to the Old Testament. Jesus riding on a donkey means he's the Messiah, the promised one, who's going to rule over everything. So there's a question for you this morning. Are you living as if he's your king? Have you come to him and bowed the knee now while you have the chance? and said, Lord Jesus, thank you for being a wonderful king. I want you to be my king. I want to live as I eat and drink, whatever I do, I want to live it all for your glory. Have you done that this morning, I wonder? Maybe you're thinking, whoa, hold on a minute. You're saying Jesus is king, but what have we learned from films like Star Wars? If anything, we've learned from films like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings that kings who set themselves up over everything should be rebelled against. Right? People like Saruman, or uh, I can't remember, is he? No, Sauron, isn't it? Sauron is the ruler who rules from the, the dark volcano in Lord of the Rings. He's somebody to be stood against to throw his horrid ring into the fire so that it breaks his power and good can come again. Or the White Witch in Narnia. She's somebody who brings horrid rule and forces everybody into her way of doing things. She's somebody to be stood against to have her power broken so winter can end and spring can come. Or Star Wars, the empire, those people who try and rule over everything. They're the wicked, evil ones. They're the dark side, right? They're the ones who we, little people, whatever power that we have, we've got to use it against them to fight. Whatever the odds, we've got to fight against this evil king who sets himself, this emperor, with his hooded cloak and his kind of strange and creepy voice. Kings are there to be, to be torn down, aren't they? If we, if we learned anything from our own history is that kings make real mess of things. That rulers, people who try to own everybody, to force everybody into their way of life, end up squashing life. You can learn that from the history of Russia. And the, the gulags and people like Stalin or Hitler, or closer to home, just think of any of the kings and queens, or most of the kings and queens anyway, in our history. Think of the First World War and the complete folly of rulers who, because of their own... because of because of their own egos, sent millions of our our young lads to their deaths just because they could. Rulers are there to be torn down, surely, aren't they? So come on, convince me that I should bow the knee to this one and not stand against him in rebellion. Well, we've seen that Jesus is king, but what kind of king is he? That's the question. If he's the kind of king who comes and squashes you into his mold, who comes and tries to force you to do something that's not good for you, who comes to try and rule over you with an iron fist, if he's that kind of God who wants to dominate you, then it's not good news at all, is it? But what kind of king is he? Is there any kind of king other than that kind of king? Well, look, imagine, put yourself in this situation. Imagine you were there. You'd heard that the king was coming, right? That he'd been doing miracles up up in the north, you know, in Galilee, all these backwards places. But now he's in Jerusalem. He's here. The king is here. And so you run. Run from your house, run from wherever you are, take the, the, the afternoon off work, and you run to see the king. And as you come around the corner, out of the gates of Jerusalem, is a guy on a donkey. It's a bit of a weird picture, isn't it? Especially not just if you were living in Jerusalem, but living in Rome. Mark, Mark's Gospel is a book that was written, probably written in Rome, to Christians and people who were living in Rome. This is what they would have expected to see when a king came. Can you see that? Any detail on that? This is Julius Caesar. Can you see him? High up on a very high chariot with an enormous war horse. That's plats in it here, there. Um, coming before an enormous gate with all sorts of people, even kind of angelic beings holding um, crowns over the top of him. All sorts of grandeur and majesty and, and a whole kind of entourage of people, soldiers. This is what you would expect if you lived in Rome and you heard that a king was coming back to his city. This is what, the kind of thing that you'd expect for him to come in triumph with soldiers all around him, with wealth and slaves and everything that he'd won, with people all over and him high up on a chariot, dressed in gold and with a a laurel or some kind of crown at least. But what do you see? What do you hear when you pop into church one Sunday morning, one Saturday morning in Rome, and you have this read out to you? You hear about a king who comes riding on a donkey. And a borrowed donkey, that's not not even his own. And he doesn't even have a saddle, so his mates have to put their coats over it so he can have a comfier seat. And the road isn't even a proper road, so they have to throw their coats down on it. And instead of having, I don't know, real royal trumpets and huge, beautiful maroon banners with Latin inscribed on them to, to wave, you get palm branches cut out from the local fields and trees around, and they're waving them. So you're reading this in Rome as a Christian and think, what on earth is that? What do you call this guy a king? You see, Jesus is a king, but he's a humble king. He's the king who owns everything in the world and yet chooses to ride into his glory, ride into his city on a borrowed donkey. That's not out of character for Jesus, by the way. You read the other stories and you'll see that he once crossed the sea in a borrowed boat. Here he is on a borrowed donkey that soon he'll die in our story, and he'll be laid down in a borrowed grave. And that's not all there is to it, but you see that he's somebody who just strangely mixes this kind of majesty, kingly majesty, with real earthly weakness. He's able to feed thousands of people with just a couple of loaves and fishes, but he's hungry himself quite often. He's able to heal people with a word, and yet he gets tired and exhausted and has to if you're an introvert, you'll know what this is like, has to leave and go into the mountains and just be on his own for hours to recharge. He's somebody who could cast out spiritual darkness, cast out demons with a word, and yet somebody who's tempted, somebody who's pressed and hard-pressed by the devil himself. He's somebody who could raise the dead and just call them as if they were sleeping. Just say, come on, get up. It's time to wake up. And yet he died. How do you put that together? That this king doesn't come riding on a massive chariot with a huge army. He doesn't come to, to rule everything, at least not yet. But he comes to die. That's what he was coming to do. He comes to ride on a borrowed donkey, to die and be laid in a buried tomb. How do you put that all together? This mystery of God becoming man. Not even a king in a, a castle or a, a um, Um, a palace, but a king who would be born in a stable, a king who would grow up to be rejected and, and a king who would go to die with a crown of thorns upon his head. How do you put that together? His majesty and his meekness. I'm not sure we can. It's a mystery, isn't it? One of those beautiful mysteries that we just take comfort in and say, this is our savior. This is our Jesus. This is our Christ, our king, able to sympathize because he's a man like us. He's a person but almighty to save, because he's God. You see, that's how we put it together. That's how wonderful this is. He sits on and stands and kneels right down to our level. Me and you, normal folks like us. But then he is God, the king overall. So he's able to take us from this and raise us up, save us, and make us his people. Just a little illustration of how embarrassing that would have been for people in Rome this is the next picture. This is a famous piece of graffiti. It says in Latin underneath, um, Aleximanos worships his God. It's a piece of graffiti from the teenager or something, taking a mick out of one of his friends who worships Jesus. Can you see Jesus there? This is is the little lad, and Jesus is the donkey headed, crucified guy. This is somebody, this is a, a genuine piece of graffiti, um, and this is a picture of it, but you can go and find it in a, in, in a um, museum in Rome, taken from a marketplace. Um, in Rome and put into a museum, a piece of graffiti from between the first and third centuries, so pretty early on, of a guy taking the mick out of his friend because he worships a king, a god like Jesus. A a donkey headed, crucified Jew. Think of the Roman people. These people, we dominated these people. They're nothing. And we crucified this guy. And he even rode into town on on a donkey. What an idiot. Who would worship this kind of God. Is he even God? Do you see? Jesus is a God like no other. Jesus isn't a God who sits on his throne far away with an iron scepter and just dominates in darkness. Jesus is a king who comes close to us, who instead of holding in his hands a scepter, opens his hands and has them nailed to a cross. Instead of sitting on a great throne to look down upon you as a tiny person, He climbs up a hill and is nailed to a cross to look down at at you and say, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Do you see who Jesus is? Jesus is the humble king. A king who uh, maybe you've experienced what Manos has experienced, who people just take the mick out of you for. Why would you follow a king like that? A king who walks into town on a donkey. But why did he do that? This king who is above all kings, this one whose name is above all names, the one to whom one day everybody will bow. Why did he do that? Why did he step down and humble himself like this? Well really, the solution, the answer is in the mouths of the people here praising him. Let's listen to this again. The people around, they start quoting this psalm, Psalm 118, and they sing "Hosanna, that means, "Oh save or save us, please." Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Come and save us, Jesus. I'm not sure they really understand what they're saying. This is a, common, a pretty common kind of poem or song to be singing at the time of the Passover, the festival that they're about to celebrate in Jerusalem. So lots and lots of people around, singing a fairly traditional song, looking forward to Jesus coming, probably to do something about the Romans. They don't really get how deep this is. But you go back and read Psalm 118. You go forward and read Philippians 2 that I read earlier on. You just listen to Jesus and you'll know there's a whole lot more to this than political freedom. Just a few verses before, Jesus had said, I do not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. A few months before this, Jesus has been teaching and winding up the religious leaders. You can read it back in chapter three. And they have begun from almost the very beginning of the story to plot his death. He knows that. And here he is walking to Jerusalem. And on the way, three times, he says, we'll go to Jerusalem. I'll be rejected. I'll be crucified. But on the third day, I'll rise again. Three times he said that. He knows where he's going. He knows what he's doing. So even if the people don't quite get it, Jesus gets it. When they say, Hosanna, please save us, they maybe mean, get rid of the Romans. It would be easier for us if they were out of the picture. But what Jesus means, as he sets his face and goes to Jerusalem, is that he's going to save them from a much deeper enemy, from a much, much darker reality than perhaps they've ever really come to understand. He's going to save them from sin. He's going to save them from themselves. He is the king who's come to bring a kingdom full of light, where all darkness will be swept away. He's a king who would come, like I said, not to sit on a throne in judgment yet, but to climb a hill and die to take judgment on himself. You see, each one of us has lived as if Jesus isn't king. Everyone in this room, however long you've been a Christian, I know that. I think each of us, if we're honest, we know that in our hearts. We've lived as if Jesus isn't king. We've walked away from him. We've lived as if we own this place, as if this house, this world belongs to me and I can do with it whatever I want, as if my life is mine, so I'm going to do it my way, thank you very much. That's how we've lived, as if we're the kings and queens of our own worlds. But the reality is Jesus is king and always has been. That rebellion, especially rebellion against such a good king who would come and be as humble as this, rebellion against a king like that deserves death, deserves being thrown out, cast away from the presence of this king. And the bad news is that this king is the source of all life. So if you're thrown out of his presence into darkness, then that's the darkness of death. You don't want to be there, brothers and sisters. We're friends. You don't want to be there. But Jesus says, I'll take that for you. Jesus steps into his own world, the world that he made, walks up a hill, and dies. And as he dies, we'll read the story soon enough around Easter. Darkness, this otherworldly darkness descends. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's judged. He takes that darkness. He's the one who's treated as a, a filthy rebel who stood against the gracious king. He's the one who's thrown outside so that people like us could come back in. Is it a good thing to rebel against evil kings? 100%. And if God is like that, if God is like the atheists say, just a heavenly Hitler trying to run your life, if if that's all that God is like, then we should stand against him. But if he's a good God and a gracious God, if he's a father, if he's a God who would do this for us, who loves us so much, to step down into the world and die, to bleed in darkness for you, it's not a that's not a king to distrust and run away from. That's not a king to fight against. That's a king to say, yes, I want you. I want to be part of your kingdom. I want to be part of a land where, where light and goodness and beauty flows, where there's justice and goodness and peace, where the little people are lifted up, where the proud people are taken down a peg. I want to live in a kingdom like that, under a king like that. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you have me? Would you forgive me? could I be welcomed in a kingdom like that? See, these people sing for their salvation. Not sure they really get what they're singing for, but Jesus does, and thank God for that, that he knew what he was aiming for, that he was coming to save, to set up a kingdom far greater than David's. Go back and read some of the the stories of David. His kingdom was a pretty cool place. Lots of enemies defeated, lots of, of wonderful parties and feasts, lots of singing and dancing and Rejoicing and enjoying God and each other and the world. But Jesus' kingdom is going to be even better than that. Not just a little piece of land on the edge of the Mediterranean, but the whole world filled with light and beauty, filled with living water, filled with truth and justice, where Jesus reigns, but where he reigns to serve. Not to own and dominate you, but to welcome you, to lift you up when you're crushed. To bind you up when you're brokenhearted. So Jesus says wonderful things like, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, for I'm, I'm lowly and meek in heart. I'm humble. Come to me, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Give up those burdens, whatever you've been carrying, whether it's your own sin, whether it's all of that mess that you've created." All of that stuff you feel guilty about. Come on, bring it to Jesus and you can let it go. You can drop it at the foot of his cross and he'll carry it for you and set you free to live with him forever. If it's sadness and grief, well, come to him. He's the God who knows what that's like. A God who knows what it's like to lose his father. A father who knows what it's like to even give up his son, to die. He knows what grief is like. So if you're grieving, come to him. Let him wipe away your tears. If you feel weak, well, come to him for strength. If you feel outside and far away, well, come to him and be, be a child of the king. If you feel ashamed, like you can't show your face, like you want to sit at the back and wish nobody could see you here, well, come to Jesus. Let him cover your shame. Let him dress you, lift up your head, and bring you into his presence and the presence of his people. He's a good king. These people don't quite know how good he is just yet. My question is, do you know how good he is? We know the end of the story. They had not seen it yet. Jesus knew. Do you know? One little thing to think about. These people had a wonderful experience, didn't they? Came along, saw a great teacher, a great guy, sang some wonderful songs, had a great experience. Who knows whether they really understood, whether they were really following Jesus a week later when he died and then rose again. They had a wonderful group experience. They got caught along, carried along with the flow, but it wasn't really something personal for them. Put yourself in their shoes. What is your faith? What's your involvement with the church here? Are you just getting carried along, going with the flow of other people's experience and you know, just coming along and enjoying the singing, enjoying being part of the family? Is that all that is for you? Just being a part of, of the experience? Or is there something deep and personal? Do you really get what Jesus understood. Do you really understand that the whole core of this isn't just Jesus will make my life a bit nicer, but that Jesus has come to die for you so that your life would be new, would be turned upside down? Are you just being carried along, going with the flow? Or do you know that Jesus has come to die for you? Is that something that's settled on your heart? Do you know that he's your king? Not just somebody these other folks are interested in, but your king today. Let's come to him and pray. And then we'll sing and gather around the table of the king. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a good king. We thank you that you who were rich beyond all measure, the God of all things became poor, so that poor people like us, poor spiritually, poor in so many ways, could become rich. Lord, I pray if there's any folks here this morning who are poor in substance, who don't have much money, Lord, would you help us? would you help them to see that there's no shame in that, that Jesus himself was poor and he stood with those who were the, at the lowest in society. Lordy, Lord, we thank you that he came to do that for us, not just to give us a better life, but to give us new life, to forgive us of sins, to promise a wonderful hope of heaven in the future. Lord, we thank you so much for this great king who is a humble king, who's a saving king. And Lord, we pray now that he would be our king. Amen
0: we hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.